This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Je pense, donc je suis. I think, therefore I am. What? Who is this I? How do I know that it is thinking? What does it even mean to say that I am, that I exist, if it's this mysterious, untrustworthy I that is saying so? To be fair, René Descartes didn't invent these problems, but in the centuries after his death, his weird thought experiments sent philosophers, psychologists, and later on neuroscientists reeling and spiraling down a seemingly bottomless chasm in search of consciousness. What is it? Where is it? How did it get there? Surely that icky gray-green stuff can't fully account for the sublime perfection of Beethoven's Ninth. If you've ever heard that there are differences between the left and the right brain, you can blame my guest today, Michael Gazaniga, who did many of the pioneering studies in this area. Now he's after even bigger game, arguably. In his new book, The Consciousness Instinct, he lays a conceptual framework for closing the gap between the meat of the brain and the magic of consciousness, and maybe saving us a lot of headaches in the future. Welcome to Think Again, Michael. Good to see you and hear you. Is this a simple problem or an incredibly complex problem or both, this issue of the mind-brain gap? One way to start thinking about it is to realize the issue and what we're trying to get at is understand this phenomenal experience we call consciousness. That word is uh, called a suitcase word. It means many, many things to many, many people. And so it's not like trying to understand the color red or orange or whatever. It's, it's used by many people in many different ways. What in the book I'm trying to do is say, what, how can modern brain science think about it and, uh, and offer new ways to think about it as a result of thinking about, I think, developments in, uh, in cognitive neuroscience, neuroscience, brain science. Now, sitting right in the right. middle of all that is this big problem of how do you get from neurons to mind? What, what does that even mean? How do you do that? How do you think about it? What's the vocabulary right. for that? And that is a huge problem. And the funny part of it is when we finally come to a better understanding of that, it's not going to be a warm and fuzzy discovery. It's going to be a very complex description of that process. And that'll be it. And people will say, oh, well, okay, and then they go about their lives as they've always gone about <laughs> their lives. So it has this, but, but the underlying science of it is extraordinarily contact. It's how different layers of an organized system that's organized by layers actually communicate between the layers. I mean, one of the problems, I guess, that comes up, and this isn't, I mean, I, I think this even seems to infiltrate science itself, but it's certainly a problem for philosophers at various points, is that people don't really like this idea of, you know, they, they, they get uncomfortable with the idea of reducing the complexities of what we are to, 
to the meat of the brain and to try to figure out how that works. But you are, you're saying, you sort of end the book by saying that we shouldn't really panic. I mean, that even if we figure all this out, it doesn't, it, it doesn't diminish what we are fundamentally. Absolutely not. The sentiment that I like best on this, uh, this topic is, uh, it came from Richard Feynman, who said, uh, you know, people are worried that I will no longer appreciate a rose, a flower, because I understand the biology of it, the physics of it, and the chemistry of it, and so forth. And he says, that's just wrong. Not only do <laughs> I see the beauty of it, but I, more than you, understand how it got to be that way. I suppose people could say they don't want to know about how a cell works because it's just, you know, takes away the magic of the biologic system. Well, every one of us every day are living better because we do know how a lot of it works now. <laughs> right, right. And so same, the same, I'm sure, will, will occur when we get closer to really trying to understand how neurons generate mind. I mean, I think one of the things that that frightens people to dig into this a little a little more or that has frightened people at different times is this idea that somehow figuring out the mechanics of the brain reduces us to machines takes away free will etc cetera, etc cetera. but you say you point out that the way consciousness functions it's both bottom up and top down that consciousness can influence the brain then let's start with the greeks we'll we'll start the story there the Greeks thought that the brain body generated the mind and that after you died, that was the story. That was it. And then okay. then the uh, 1400 years, other ideas evolved and pe lots of people fed into this, but basically the idea stayed that the brain was largely responsible with other body parts participating. But after you did, there was a soul or spirit that left the body for an afterlife. And then finally, mm -hmm. you get to Descartes, where he proposed formal dualism that, in fact, the mind existed outside of the brain and made contact at, at the brain uh, in a particular gland, the, the pineal gland. Those were the, the three ideas. And uh, the vast scholarship and argument over these over 2,500 years. And then you land sort of uh, where I like to start the modern accounting of it is at a 1962 conference at the Vatican, where okay. John Eccles, the Nobel laureate in neuroscience at the time, a man who'd figured out how the synapse work of the brain and so forth, put together a conference called Brain and Conscious Experience. And he had all kinds of people there. To, but those same three ideas were represented by the then current neuroscientist. Eccles himself was a dualist. Donald Mackay, very distinguished neuroscientist, physicist from uh, uh, UK, had the best kind right. of mechanical articulated view. But he thought there was a spirit after death. And then uh, my former mentor, Roger Sperry, was there. And he thought it was more that the brain could develop mental states which could then control the brain parts, but it was all physical. It was all part of the biologic system. So the same right. three ideas, 2,500 years later, now in the hands of the early uh, modern neuroscientists thinking about that, are the same. And I virtually right. say that those pretty much stick around today, too. 
And why do you think, in a nutshell, why, why so persistent? Why so hard to shake? Well, no one's come up with a compelling other answer. <laughs> so there's not, a, there's not a fourth entrant here. There, there's all kinds of arguments and complexities about the nature of it and the structure of it. And the, you know, in, in modern terms, uh, I mean, just to simp- oversimplify probably, but get a sense of it, there's, there, the philosophers have, have done a lot of work on this. And there's kind of the, the school, and, and we'll talk about John Searle at Berkeley, who believes sure. that subjective experience is a real thing and can be studied in the brain, and that's the story. And then you got the, the, the other distinguished uh, philosopher, Dan Dennett, who says, well, it certainly is a something, but it's probably an illusion. And when we figure out how the brain works, it'll, it'll be done in an illusionary fashion. You seem to somewhat agree with Dennett's view that there is some aspect of illusion going on. Absolutely. So my view, so anyway, then you ring it right up to, there's many, many uh, great scientists working on this problem now. And here's my pitch. <laughs> here's my, <Right. laughs> my, my, when it comes down to that. A lot of people assume that the subjective experience of consciousness is, is possible because of networks in the brain working in an orchestrated way to produce this wonderful thing that we experience. And so it's a, right. a property of a complex network, and they're trying to figure out what that network is. My view, which comes out of my research and thinking about this, is no, no. You got to look at how the brain is organized, and, and I'm arguing that it's organized in terms of a vast number of, of modules, uh, specialized systems in the brain that carry out particular functions. And the conscious experience of those functions is enabled by circuits, brain circuits, specific to that module. It's not something right. that, it doesn't go into the consciousness box and, and then we all in, enjoy the experience. That in fact, there's probably gazillions, to pick a scientific number, uh, <laughs> of capacities in our brain. And when each one is up being active, the conscious experience uh, aspect of it is enabled by circuits associated with that system that's currently up up to bat, as it were. And when we think about consciousness, you know, as you describe it, in terms of modules, you give the metaphor of um, bubbles, like bits, you know, each module is bubbling up its own consciousness uh, and kind of taking the stage for a minute. The bubbles just keep coming up and whichever one is up at a moment is the experience and then through time as the bubbles keep coming up through time they're stitched together into this sensation of conscious unity that we all experience each bubble is in itself a kind of moment of consciousness but then we have a narrative linear consciousness over time that right. that stitches them together into our sense of self and exactly. our lives yeah exactly so okay <laughs> Someone said, well, uh, well, that's cute. You got any data for that? So let me give an example from uh, split-brain research that, that might help people understand it. So, okay. so split-brain patients are patients that have had their hemispheres divided in order to control their epilepsy. So if a seizure starts, it stays in one hemisphere, it doesn't go over to the other, and maybe a generalized convulsion will not occur. Okay, what are these patients like after surgery. Uh, their right. two di- hemispheres are disconnected. 
Well, one hemisphere is the language-dominant hemisphere, and it just keeps talking along, just like I'm talking along here. And the <laughs> other one doesn't talk as much, but does occasionally. And after the surgery, at some point, can utter a few words, right? Right. So, but before that time, immediately after the surgery, only the left hemisphere is talking. So if you show an apple, if you, if you fixate on a point on a wall, and I show you something to the right of the, that point, say an apple, the left brain would call, well, I saw an apple. What's the big deal here? If I now put the apple on the other side of the fixated point, so it's to the left of the point, that now goes to right. your right hemisphere. And the left hemisphere would say, well, I didn't see anything. And then we'd be able to show, however, that the right hemisphere did see it because it could pick it out with its left hand. Anyway, all that aside, now let's follow those patients and along and uh, some of them can learn to speak out of each hemisphere. So now you have them fixate on the wall again and now we're going to put up the word breakfast. And what that actually means if you follow the anatomy is the break B R E A K the first part of the word is going to their right hemisphere and the fast right. part F A S T is going to their left hemisphere. So you say what do you see? And here's here's the clever part is the right hemisphere speaks first and it just actually only sees the break part. It doesn't know about fast because it's the hemisphere <laughs> yeah. disconnected. And so it's, it says break like it's going to say break. But at that instant, the other hemisphere knows it saw the word fast. And so that's mispronunciation. So <laughs> it corrects and goes break. And then adds huh. in what it knows, and it says breakfast. So we're able to see that because of the surgery and our special testing and all that kind of stuff. But you and I are sitting there doing that, and maybe it's just these modules through time popping up and, and contributing to this unified sense of we just see the word breakfast. Right. But it's two separate systems popping up in due course. So you can actually see it in a clinical setting with patients with a particular surgery. Uh, right. But then it always, these things always raise the question, well, maybe that goes on in a lickety-split kind of way uh, in the normal processing of information. What's actually terrifying about that, although it shouldn't really be a surprise, is that you know that kind of example reminds us of the extent to which we are unaware of, I mean, even under normal circumstances, we're unaware of the sort of box of consciousness within which each of us is individually trapped, aside from whatever feedback we might get from our loved ones or employers or whatever, but that, you know, that we don't know what we don't know. We see that acutely when individual systems are damaged or offline or not communicating with each other, but even under normal circumstances, there is much that is not available to us, but the illusion of general consciousness suggests that we are somehow whole and seeing things objectively. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we always kick around. How much of, the, of what our brain does is going on outside our, our realm of consciousness? And I put the number at 99.98%. <laughs> really? I mean, really? I mean, look, take your index finger and point to your nose, right? Okay. Simple enough. I'm doing that. No yep. one has the slightest idea how that works. <laughs> right? 
Right. What was the thought that generated it, that willed it from the thought to the muscles, to the neurons, to the solving the geometric problem? On and on and on. <laughs> the next sentence you utter, do you think you really have any idea how that works? It's, it's a bit like the, our cars that we can no longer repair ourselves because of the complicated computer systems that are behind under the hood. Yeah. Or uh, as I point out in the book, when we get into the idea of layered architecture, the, my friend John Doyle loves to use the 777 as an example. It has a thousand computers on it and 150,000 different parts. And basically none of the systems need to know anything about the other system. They only need to only do their thing and then communicate right. their thing to the next thing, which doesn't need to know how the first thing did its thing. And all, right. that, all that kind of organization, which is uh, called a layered architecture, goes on, uh, I think, uh, unquestionably in us, the biologic systems of all kinds are layered structures. And that, that's just another way of saying that, that the structure of our conscious self is just simply isn't aware of all right. of the processes that are going on that lead up to the construction of the psychological moment. It's just, you don't need to know about it. You know, we're always, especially in mood states and everything else, you know, you, you don't know, you try to get on control of it, but there's, uh, your body is telling you other things and other signals and we try to manage right. it. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's what I mean that like our, the self that we think we are not only is all kinds of mechanical stuff going on, on under the hood in terms of, you know, producing speech and so on, mm -hmm. but even our personality, our perception, you know, everything that we think of as in a sense under our control isn't necessarily, it's all mediated by, or, or, or at least influenced heavily by forces from below. Right. Absolutely. So w one example, it's not great, but it, but it gets the idea across, is uh, the hardware-software issue. So if okay. you, take a, you, you take a hardware, a motherboard, a, a laptop, and you just look at it, the physics of it, it's useless unless you add to that the software. And right. the software is useless if you don't put it together with the hardware. And somehow the two interact in a way to give you your PowerPoint or your word processing or whatever it does. And how the software interacts with the hardware to produce the, what it is we're talking about, that yeah. vocabulary we haven't really developed. And it's, Got it. so there's a, a layered interaction that's going on and that's the challenge in the neuron to mind in, animate, inanimate, right. and all kinds of things. That's the gap. That's the, the system that has to be understood by all kinds of sciences now. And, and I think it's what we're trying to do when we puzzle the, what, how, how the, the neurons produce the mind. It's the same kind of intellectual. How do layers integrate? What's the, how they put it is, how do, what are the protocols that have to be understood to understand, in fact, how layers interact? I see. So. And you, another example you give in the book that I think is is il really illustrative is the uh, DNA molecule. Yep. The fact that it is simultaneously a collection of uh, atoms arranged in a certain pattern, but at the same time it encodes information, and you can look at the structure and not necessarily see 
the thing that it, that it's encoded to produce. Exactly. So, so th- this this comes out of the work of uh, one of the scientists I highlight in the book, Howard Patti, and right. and he he drove this question right back to what is what, kind of what is life? How do you get from inanimate to animate? And right. th- there's a big story there, but basically, as, as one way of thinking about it, is the DNA question. So the DNA gets strung out in terms of nucleotides, and there's a little code. And that code becomes kind of what we call the gene. But right. So you have the DNA physical structure, but the code is a symbolic structure. And that symbolic right. structure has to be read and then serves as the blueprint for reproduction. So in one moment, you've got the physical structure producing a, co- a, a, a symbolic structure, which becomes subjective. And he says that is that is how the gap gets closed. On the one hand, there's a physical structure. On the other hand, there's this code, which is also in a physical structure, but it is processed as a symbol. And probably right. the, the processing of mental life is going to be understood in terms of this, the symbolic codes that we have flying around our brain. And, and then he, he goes in and, and pulls in the idea of complementarity that this is a this is the classic problem of uh, of physics uh, that Bohr's and, I, and Einstein fought over, and realized that Bohr was right that there is there are two aspects of this situation that have to be understood if we're going to understand the whole thing. There's there's two layers interacting and it has its own vocabulary. So th- these are kind of mind bending ideas, and <laughs> it really is it benefits from actually reading it and thinking about well, it a long course. time as I did, and I saw. You know, I'm a pretty careful reader. I'm coming more from the humanities and mm-hmm. literature in my background mm-hmm. than I am from from science. Mm-hmm. But I've read quite a bit of biology and psychology and stuff on the mind and and the brain. And so, even for a careful, serious reader such as I consider myself to be, mm-hmm. and even with your very clear and enjoyable explanations in the book this is incredibly complicated stuff yeah for sure yeah good (laughs) (laughs) i want to tell you it it is it is it's just there's just no getting around it i guess sticking with what pati is saying this notion of these things that are two things at once you know which it's like you know the quantum level of of reality where electrons can be in you know, multiple places at the same time, DNA, which can be both symbolic and real. These things are, in a way, they're sort of all metaphorical for what's going on in the brain, but they're also not. I get the sense that Pati is saying that there's something that connects these these seemingly disparate systems that isn't just sim- metaphorical. That it's like something fundamental to the nature of reality. Going back to the the the, la- the layered idea and the protocols between yeah, yeah. them, that is a general scientific problem. And as Doyle says, uh, we haven't developed a vocabulary for how to think about that. So it's I think where the future actions will come from, and how to think about it is, as I like to say when I talk to students, this is your problem. This is, I mean, this is the 21st century problem. People do what they can do, right? And so 
we're living at a point in, in neuroscience where we can stain things, we can measure them, we can get detailed knowledge of structures. And it's great. We all got to know all that stuff. But right. the, understanding the dynamics of how these things interact is the harder harder set of problems. And uh, I think that's where this generation uh, will, will, will have to make some contribution, major contributions. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think this is a good place for us to segue into the second part of the show. In the second part of the show, we're going to watch two short videos from Big Things Interview Archives and see where the conversation goes from there. The first one is Leonard Mlodinow, who's a neuroscientist, on your brain and original thinking. Sometimes the the solution to a challenge in life isn't cleverer thinking. It's to step back and look at, the, look at the problem, not the solution. And then you'll realize that you had some hidden assumption or some assumption that you could relax that you didn't realize. And that will change everything. For example, here's a riddle. Marjorie and Margie were born of the same mother and father on the same day of the same month at the same hour. And yet they are not twins. How is that possible? So these two girls were born at the same time with the same parents, but they're not twins. Well, the answer is they're triplets. Now you could, you could start reasoning, you're not gonna get there because you have an assumption, implicit assumption that you're making. You have a picture in your mind. That's why the riddle is tough. I say Mar Marjorie and Margie. You're picturing two girls or two women. Once you have that picture in your mind, you're excluding the answer, which is triplets or quadruplets or something else like that. And that's, that happens in life too, that sometimes the answer is easy once you question your assumptions. And that's a key to elastic thinking. The human brain is an, is an idea machine. On the unconscious level, a level that you're not even aware of, your brain is constantly making associations and coming up with ideas. Now, if all these ideas just popped into your consciousness, you'd be overwhelmed, you would drown in them, you wouldn't be able to function, as some people with certain mental disorders experience. They, if you're schizophrenic, for instance, you might be swamped with so many sensations and ideas that you can't even connect with reality. Most of us do better than that because we have these things called cognitive filters in our brain that kill the ideas that are less conventional or less likely to be true, less connected to reality, and they allow the more ordinary ideas to come through on the theory in your brain that those are the ones most likely to work. And in most circumstances, they are the ones that, that work. 
but sometimes they're not and you need, you need a different idea. When you're looking to think differently, you have to learn how to relax those cognitive filters. When you relax your mind, it's only when you relax your mind and you open your mind and you open yourself that a new idea can pop into your mind that, hey, maybe I never thought of this, I didn't, I didn't question that. So because of that, when you're exercising elastic thinking, when you're trying to get a new idea or to question an assumption, overcome a mental barrier, to adapt to change rather than applying the same old, same old, it's important to keep all distractions away from you. Keep anything that would focus your mind away. For instance, your cell phone. Even if, if you're not checking your cell phone, but you know it's on, you might feel it vibrate, or you might just think, I wonder what's there. That's bad. Changing your task, multitasking is bad. You're not gonna get these really brilliant ideas if every 10 minutes you're going to another focus. These things take time. Where I would uh, key into this is to think about uh, how come bad ideas stick around so long? Okay. This is an issue in, 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 well, in life in general, but in science, an idea will uh, come on into, to the scene. It will be uh, generated based on some initial findings, and then it will be deepened and broadened, and then there will be a switch, and people kind of think, well, maybe that's not the right idea. Maybe we misunderstood something in our earlier interpretations, and maybe actually there's something else, another way of thinking about the problem. So right. all those processes can go on, but they're very hard to get going because of the presence of the bad idea, the, the other idea, which turns out to be bad. I mean, it, it, <laughs> there's no malintent here. It's just that it <laughs> turns out that was wrong. And the resistance to thinking freshly about a given issue is very, uh, very strong. Uh, and, and people who look at this sociologically say, well, yeah, the, somebody's livelihood is based on it. And he's training people. And those people are training people. And they get on the scientific study sections and blah, 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 blah. And so, right. so now somebody who has another idea, you got to battle all that and, and this all goes on everybody knows about it and you just gotta you gotta deal with it but i'm all for developing institutions and methods for maybe examining maybe developing more what i like to call safe spaces for examining assumptions <laughs> and, <laughs> and really like getting getting it uh uh, getting it more recognized that we should do this. For, for, for example, uh, uh, sometimes the most intense critic of an idea could be the person who generated it. I mean, they've thought about right. it a long time, and, and they, you know, they know where the problems are usually, but they're not usually given over to talking about it. <laughs> and yet <Right>. maybe... Uh, <laughs> Maybe if we developed a, a, a method, a place to say, no, this is what you do here, and we, other smart people are around who, who are a lot of mutual respect, and they, they can take that idea and shake it and see what to do with it. And, and the question would be, would this generate a greater and more, uh, more efficient turnover Moving gotcha. along from one idea to another. The great example of that in, in your book is uh, when Francis Crick decided to turn his attention to the brain. Right. And because he had you know, such an incredible reputation, such standing as a result of the work on the double helix, 
people listen to him and he sort of turns himself into a kind of expert, but also brings people together from all over neuroscience to resolve some of the problems and some of the conflicts in the field. Sure. Fra Francis Crick uh, uh, is responsible in, in our modern era for, for saying to all of his basic biology friends and his neuroscience friends, it's okay to, to try to understand consciousness. And uh, that was a hot topic because a lot of, of the total reductionist uh, assumptions of, uh, of most scientists are ch don't like this idea of talking about it. And so he just said, well, listen, uh, <laughs> I know a thing or two about reductionism, and I think it's great, and we should be looking at that. So he started this idea of doing a neurocorrelates of consciousness, and then he teamed up with uh, Christoph Koch, a very bright uh, a young colleague at the time who's now really kind of taken taken that on himself and mm -hmm. and given the okay let's let's study this so yes it was uh it, it was very bold to him at the time and of course there was criticism and all the rest of it but that's all right normal part right. of the process what does this guy think he's doing all of a right. sudden riding riding in here on his white horse exactly exactly yeah <laughs> that's, right. that's our problem you can't you can't touch it <laughs> but that move significantly advances the field it sort of shakes it out of out of a kind of stuck place absolutely yeah and I, I noticed a couple of times in your book, this stuck out for me, that you mention and clearly admire the idea of, or the reality of, the polymath. There are a couple of people that you mention in the book at different times, and you say, you know, this person was a true polymath. Mm. And I wonder if that also relates to this idea of having frameworks from different ways of thinking about problems and being able to bring them together. That's the idea behind a liberal arts education, right? You learn from all kinds of areas. Uh, people have worked, uh, you know, wondered about uh, scientific discoveries, and and uh, it's very common for someone who's uh, sitting studying a, a pile of data and they're trying to figure out what it means and everything, and a metaphor will come over from a friend in the English department, right? And or, or a historical perspective on something that you hadn't known about. And I think all these things combine in our mental system and and, and try to move our thinking down the field. So, so yes, right. uh, the, the richer the, the exchange, the better. I mean, one of the difficulties with that kind of ex exchange though, I guess comes down to finding the right code to talking across the layered <laughs> That's architecture of, of intellect in the sense that, you know, if they're specialized in their own fields, how do they talk to each other? It's an issue, absolutely an issue. The, the you know, interdisciplinarity and what we're talking about here is talked about a lot, of course. Yeah, 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 of It's course. very hard to achieve. And right. it's like pulling teeth in, in many ways. People want to stay uh, you know, what was the Einstein quote? Uh, <laughs> we're all prisoner of our own ideas. And right. so what happens is we're comfortable talking about our own ideas or with other people who know the code of our own ideas. But to actually talk to the guy across the hallway who may be an English professor, ah, ah, no, I, no, 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 that's hard to do. Until you get the right, right you get the right one. And, and then, so it's a subset, my experience is a subset of faculty in a university who are willing to 
see the overlaps and to work at it. Not casual, it's work. And, the, and those are, can be very right. productive experiences. It's kind of what universities are right. supposed to do, but it's, <laughs> right. it's not all that common my experience. Well, because, I mean, also, historically, it seems like universities kind of vacillate on this question of whether they're supposed to do that or whether they're, everyone is supposed to go off and burrow very deep into their own hole. And what's interesting is the social forces are there to keep you in your hole because right. you've got to be an expert at something. And you're going to be your promotions, your all this stuff that goes into a life in academics are that you have to be very well rehearsed and knowledgeable about a particular topic. So yes, people. Uh, so there's, there's, right. There's great forces to keep you uh, on the straight and narrow, and that's all understandable. I mean, it's, none of this is mysterious, and there's no malintent. It's just the way it is. No, but one one would like to think that there could be, I don't know, some kind of systemic answer to this question. Maybe that's not possible. Maybe it can only happen locally, as you say, individual personalities. Well, there are institutions and, you know, granting agencies who know this problem and are trying to encourage greater interaction. And I, I applaud all that. I'm just saying it's hard. And it's it's of not course. it's not you don't have you don't invite an English professor, a historian, and a physicist and a <laughs> biologist to a party and think it's going to be kumbaya. It, it's, <laughs> it's just not what happens. <laughs> right. Hopefully, it doesn't end up in a fist fight. It may just be everyone standing uh, against the wall holding their drink awkwardly. Unless you <laughs> unless you construct the party carefully, and by that I mean you've gone right. and done your homework of. Of the type of the person, are they willing to let the line out a little bit? And uh, then, then the party is the best party you had. Let's go now to our second and final surprise clip of the show. This is author and journalist Johan Hari. And he's talking about inequality and depression and anxiety. When I feel depressed, like loads of people, I say I feel down, right? And as I was learning about the causes of depression and anxiety for my book, Lost Connections, I started to realize, I don't think that's a metaphor. There's this amazing um, professor at Stanford called Robert Sapolsky, who in his early 20s went to live with a troop of baboons in Kenya. And it was his job to figure out when are baboons most stressed out? So his job was to hit them with little tranquilizer darts and then take a blood test and measure something called cortisol, which is a hormone that baboons and us release when we're stressed. And baboons live in this hierarchy. So the females don't, interestingly, but the men live in a very strict hierarchy. So if there's 30 men, number one knows he's above number two, number two knows he's above number three, number 12 knows he's above number 13. And that really determines a lot. It determines who you get to have sex with. It determines what you get to eat. It determines whether you get to sit in the shade or you're pushed out into the heat. You know, it's a really, really significant where you are in the, in the hierarchy. And what Professor Sapolsky found is baboons are most stressed in two situations. One is when their status is insecure. So if you're the top guy and someone's circling, which comes for you, uh, you will be massively stressed. And the other situation is when you feel you're at the bottom of a hierarchy. You're, 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 you know, you've been kind of humiliated. 
And what, what Professor Sapolsky found, which I think is really noticed and then it was later developed by other scientists, is when you feel you've been pushed to the bottom, what you do is you show something called a submission gesture. So you, you baboons will raise, uh, I, I say you, I assume no baboons are watching this, maybe they are. Um, you, 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 a baboon will put its body down physically, it will put its head down, it will put its bottom in the air, and it will cover its head. So it clearly seems to be communicating, just leave me alone, you've beaten me, okay, you've beaten me. And what lots of scientists have subsequently developed, people like Professor Paul Gilbert in Britain and Professor Kate Pickett and Professor Richard Wilkinson, also in Britain, have really developed is this idea that actually what human depression is in part, not entirely, but in part, is a form of a submission gesture. It's a way of saying, I can't cope with this anymore, right? Particularly people who feel they've been pushed to the bottom of hierarchies or who feel, remember the other stressful situations when you feel your status is insecure. It's a way of just going, okay, okay, I retreat. I don't want this fight anymore. You've beaten me. It's, it's a kind of very strong evolutionary impulse where you feel you're under attack to just submit in the hope that the stress and anxiety will then go away, uh, that the sources of the stress and anxiety will then go away. And one thing that's so important, Kate, Wilkinson, sorry, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson really developed this, is they've shown, so as inequality grows, um, depression and anxiety grow. They've shown this is a very robust effect, right? This helps us to explain it. One example that comes up is uh, a less loaded one than the problem of depression uh, okay. is fatigue. So we all can feel fatigued. And is right. that a cue coming up through the layered system where right. various systems are being monitored and sensed and re realize that you're depleted in this or that biochemical commodity? And it's queuing, 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 and finally it, it gets up to the, the top and you get this sensation of fatigue, which has a tremendous utility. Stop. You're killing yourself. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, there's things going on in your body that have to, we need time for repair. And people do thinking on that, and there's truth to that. So you take that in, in as a springboard to uh, what the role of various identified emotional states, are they not? built-in adaptive responses to cue the person right. one way or the other. So, you know, the one that people are familiar with is uh, anxiety may be a very valuable uh, an emotion because it's cueing you that maybe you're overreaching and you better not go to that thing that you're talking about because it's maybe it's destructive with you or you're reaching too high on something else. So the emotional system is there playing a very valuable role. The obvious ones involving fear and, and all the rest of it are cueing the system for biologic uh, survival. And uh, we come in with our big cortex and interpretive systems that make a lot of this stuff, but they're really there. <laughs> they're really there as monitors to keep the machine, to keep the brain, to keep the organism wholly together and functioning in a complex environment. So, so the, the emotional system is just playing this crucial role at all times, cueing and guiding us because it is examining all kinds of parts of the brain that we may not be, well, we don't, but we're not consciously access, access to it all. Something like this came up in, the com in a conversation last week with Antonio Damasio mm -hmm. about this, you know, it, it, made me, it made me think about whether when we talk about the brain, and I know that, you know, so your career has been focused on the brain, mm -hmm. 
But, you know, the system, the nervous system and the sort of biochemical processes that are going on that kind of bubble up, you know, from inside our bodies and from the, you know, nerves of our skin come, you know, bringing in signals from the outside world, which then ultimately get interpreted in the brain. But it's such a broad and distributed system. Should we not think of the brain and the body so separately as we as we do? Oh, it, it, it's a complex interacting system. I don't, uh, uh, Antonio Damasio was one of the first people to really bring this into modern neuroscience. And I think he's absolutely right. Uh, and that that's, we're finding out more and more. We're finding out how the gut, uh, right. it relates to the neur neural activity and, and all the rest of it. So yes, it, it, it's obviously, uh, there's cueing systems and signaling systems of all kinds that are very important part of the whole story. I don't think there's any question right, about right. it. Okay. <laughs> I think we have had a, a, a rich and productive conversation on, on, on all of this stuff. And I think it's true that beyond this point, people do need to read the book. And yep. uh, I want to thank you so much for your time today, Mike Kazanaga. <laughs> That's great. And thank you for taking the time. And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again and rounds out our two-episode mini-mini-series about neuroscience, brain, consciousness over the last two weeks. We'll have interesting things coming your way in the next couple of weeks going in different directions from a live show that I did in Green Bay, Wisconsin with graphic novelist and Believer Magazine art director Kristen Radke to a conversation with investigative journalist Ronan Farrow about the decline of American diplomacy and influence abroad. In the meantime, if you want to come talk to us, hang out with us on social media, please join Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast on Facebook. It's about 400 strong and growing, and we are constantly having interesting conversations on there, so I'd love to see you there. And we'll be back next week. Hope you can join us.